and welcome. My name is Robert Buffard, and this is the Robert's Thoughts MovieCast. Today I'm here with my former roommate and the host, the co-host of the Buddy Movies podcast and film reviewer, Anthony Watkins. Anthony, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming on. Uh, today we are planning to talk about Christopher Nolan and his filmography because this episode is dropping July 22nd and his birthday is July 30th. So that's how the two things kind of line up. It was also supposed to coincide with the release of Tenet. But of course, with everything that's been going on with COVID-19, Tenet has been pushed back to August. And there is probably at least 60% chance it'll get pushed back at least one or two or three or four or five more times. Yeah. Just based on how everything has been going. Um, Maybe you're even listening to this in 2022 and it still hasn't been released. Who knows? (laughs) Anyway... Since this is Anthony's first time on the podcast, we're going to do the normal thing and do some get to know your questions. So number one, Anthony, since this is a movie podcast, how did you first get into movies? Yeah, I mean, it probably started back in 2007, I would say. I I became some, I became good friends with a uh, church friend who was really into movies. And so I started watching a lot of movies and I didn't, wasn't at that point, I wasn't actually going to the theater to see movies. I didn't really start that until about 2009, actually. But I started like, just watching a lot of movies and buying movies. I was, I, I bought them mainly because A, I think I wanted that physical copy, but also I loved watching behind the scenes content about movies. I loved listening to director commentaries just so like I could get inside the director's mind what they were thinking about, how this scene was constructed, things like that, as, as well as like just stuff you, you don't know, like this scene, this, this bit was improvised or something like that. I was just fascinated by how, how movies were made, what like director motivations were for certain scenes or moments in films. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I started getting into them. And then it kind of followed through. And when I started, I just started seeing movies in theaters then. As well as you know, kept amassing my collection of movies, and it's something I eventually studied in in college. So it's uh, it really started though back in back in '07. Awesome. So since that's been about thirteen years now, can you give us three movies to help understand your tastes? Yes, I have Inception, which is my favorite movie to date, Jurassic Park, and The Terminator. So. I I include, those are all like sci-fi, so I'm really big into the sci-fi genre, Um, but I wanted to include one from Nolan, one from Steven Spielberg, and then one from James Cameron, because those are three, three of my uh, favorite directors, uh, those, those three there. Yeah, so those are, those are pretty big, big movies for me. I first watched The Terminator at Messiah, actually, as part of our sci-fi class, and I was, I was like, how did I not see this movie before? And I love the sequel as well. I don't, I'm not going to go into with all the other sequels because they, uh, the franchise has kind of fallen apart. But one and two, I still very much subscribe to, and uh, yeah, so those are those are a couple of my favorites there. Nice. What's the best thing you've seen recently? Uh, that could be anything—a movie, show, just something you've watched recently that you really enjoyed. Yeah, right now I'm actually going through *Man on the High Castle* for the first time on on Amazon. Um, and I'm really liking that. I love, I found out that I really like movies or shows that deal with alternate histories. That's right. the reason why I like Tarantino because he's done that a couple times in his movies. And Man in the High Castle, obviously, is that's the main plot uh, point is the alternate, you know, what if the Nazis had won the world, had won World War II, where, where would we be at? So it's, it's a pretty fascinating show. I'm, I'm just about through season two, and there's four seasons. So I'm about halfway through. 
And I'm really liking that. Um, the show is, it does a really good job, kind of similar to Breaking Bad, how it puts characters in very difficult situations and makes them make difficult choices, which is, I, I love when shows are able to do that successfully. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really been able to do that really well. And so, yeah, that's something I'm, I'm still currently watching, but I'm liking it so far. So, so lastly, I have some this or that movie related questions for you. Yes. Um, and since I know you kind of well, since we lived together for a little bit less than a year, and I know, I know your movie tastes pretty well, yeah, I kind of catered these questions to that. Okay. So this is for decades in film, the 80s or the 2010s? I would still go 80s. What about comedy or action sci-fi? Action sci-fi. Definitely, yes. And lastly, you already mentioned this kind of earlier, James Cameron or Steven Spielberg? Oof. I would go with Spielberg because of the wider palette, the wider re- you know resume that he has. Cameron's done some great films, but he's, he's done very, very few compared to Spielberg. Spielberg's been, he's done so many you know great iconic films. So I, mm-hmm. I'd have to have, definitely have to go with Spielberg on that one. Nice. Those are just some fun, fun questions. And I didn't include Nolan in there because I know you also love oh, him, but of yeah, course yes. that's yes. the whole point of this episode. So yep. I figured might as well throw the other two in there. Yeah. So speaking of Nolan, let's get into our personal backgrounds and his background in film. Uh, Christopher Nolan is obviously one of the biggest, if not the biggest directors working today outside of IP driven fare. So that excludes like the Russo brothers, for example, who did a lot of the MCU movies. Right. Um, Out of his 10 or 11 movies that have been theatrically released and to have uh, feature length runtimes, Dunkirk and Inception were nominated for Best Picture. Memento and Inception were nominated for Best Screenplay. He was finally nominated for Best Director in 2017 with Dunkirk. And then, though The Dark Knight did win for Heath Ledger with Best Acting or Best Supporting Actor, and it won for Sound Editing, Inception won for Cinematography, Sound, and Visual Effects, and Interstellar won Visual Effects. Dunkirk won Best Editing and Best Sound, and his Art Direction, Cinematography, Score, Visual Effects, Sound Mixing, Makeup, Editing, Production Design have all been nominated. Mm. So Christopher Nolan, he has, even though it's relatively few overall accolades, he is definitely well recognized. His films are at least. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's why it was such a big deal when he won for Best Director. He was nominated for Best Director for Dunkirk. He hasn't even won a Golden Globe. Yeah, I was going to say long overdue in the Best Director nomination there. Yes. We could argue that maybe as early as Memento or Prestige, he could have been nominated. Yeah. And certainly, especially Inception. Yeah. And certainly for the Dark Knight. Um, yeah. I, I think. But Dark Knight didn't get nominated for Best Picture, right? No, Black no it did not. But it was the following year that the Academy expanded it from eight, eight right. films to 10, which was no coincidence. I definitely did that because I think they felt bad about not including the Dark Knight on a Best Picture nomination. Right. Um, yeah. The Dark Knight, we'll get into this definitely. It's one of the best. Movies of the last 20 years, oh, maybe yeah. all time. Yeah. Um, finally, eight out of Nolan's 10 movies have grossed over $100 million. Only Memento and Following didn't. Um, the Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises each grossed over $1 billion, while his total uh, box office gross is over $4.7 billion. So there's the reasoning behind him just being the biggest director out there. Mm-hmm. So even though guys like, you know, Scorsese and Spielberg and Cameron are, and Tarantino, these kinds of directors, they're still working today and still putting out movies. Uh, 
they don't bring in the kind of audiences that Nolan is able to bring in. Yeah. What's the first Christopher Nolan movie that you ever saw? It was The Prestige, actually. And I remember this is one I actually, I rented it from Blockbuster. So that's to uh-huh. that just give you a little time frame uh, when it was. It was about, I think it was 07. So it would have been a year or so after it came out, because I believe it was recent 2006. Yeah. Um, that was the first first film I had I had seen from him, and I was at that point like I was I didn't haven't even seen Batman Begins. So I wasn't really familiar with Christian Bale a whole lot back then, or even Hugh Jackman. I mean, I think that was before I even saw the X Men movies. So really, those two actors were kind of unknown to me actually at the time. But I was I was very very intrigued by the story, by the characters. Uh, his his unconventional narrative style, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into, how he employed you know these flashbacks and jump time and did a lot of cross cutting, and just like the setting of the film itself, it's set you know late late 19th century and has this steampunk aesthetic to it, but it includes sci-fi as well. So there's like this this mix of reality and sci-fi as well, and I just thought it was a very and of course like the twists and turns, you don't know exactly where the story will end up, and finally you get the twist in the end. I love movies with with well executed twists. Um, it's why I'm a fan of you know movies like The Sixth Sense or mm-hmm. Unbreakable. Uh, and I thought the Prestige really pulled it off very very well. And that was just just a very very entertaining film. I thought. Yeah. So then follow up. What has made him continue to last as your favorite or one of your favorite directors? Yeah, I think it's just how he despite being despite how mainstream he is now it's just how he love he loves to do things differently and be unique and be his own his own director he's not trying to follow the path of other mainstream films um even if i'm sure we'll get into this his his use of practical effects how he doesn't rely on cgi to as like a scapegoat as an easy escape uh of, of doing scenes he likes if at all possible to do things in camera which i really appreciate because uh it's just Anything that can look, nothing on screen can look more real than what's actually real. You know, CGI mm-hmm. can't accomplish accomplish that, no matter how good your CGI is. And so, I love whenever, whenever, whenever possible, he does things in camera. Um, you know, the hospital explosion, in the Dark Knight, the truck flip sequence, in the Dark Knight, things like that. So that's that's one of the reasons I love him so much is because he loves to do things in camera. He also likes to shoot, you know, in IMAX. He he's a big fan of the theatrical experience, which I am too. I'm big. You know, he loves the sanctity of, of, of cinema. He's a big proponent of the, of the theatrical experience, which I love because I love cinema. I love being in the theater, watching a movie on the big screen. You know, I don't, preferably, I don't like having to watch a big a movie that should be experienced on the big screen. I don't like having to watch it on my 55-inch TV, you know. I want to be in the theater with the surround sound. I want to have the full experience, especially, you know, in IMAX. And he, he really puts, he's able to accomplish great scale in his movies. And I really, really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, and he just, like I said, he just likes being unique, being different with his unconventional narrative styles, uh, the way he, he cross cuts and yeah. Yeah, I'll agree with everything you just said. When I was writing up this outline, I was trying to remember what my first Nolan movie was and like what made me really decide he's my favorite director. Um, and I don't, really know what my first one was it had to have been batman begins which came out in 2005 right i remember i saw that in uh at a drive-in because there's two drive-ins near what i near where i grew up and my family would go a couple times per summer so i saw that and you know it's batman i was a little kid who liked superheroes yeah i think i was nine when it came out so starting off there i saw batman but i didn't recognize him as a nine-year-old i didn't recognize it 
as like this director and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, it probably wasn't till Inception came out. And after I saw that a few times that I realized, man, this guy's got some skills because at that point I had seen probably still just Batman Begins. Actually, after Inception, I saw all the Batman movies. I went back and saw the prestige and then memento. And then obviously a few years later came interstellar and Dunkirk. Right. It's just something. I think it probably started with the way that I loved the Batman movies for a while. That was tied for my favorite trilogy with Lord of the Rings. Um, until I've gone back and I don't really like dark Knight rises as much, which we'll get into. Yeah. But I was enamored with him starting with the dark Knight trilogy. And then, just Inception is so mind-blowing every time you watch it. Mm-hmm. And then I love to watch and rewatch The Prestige and Memento uh, because those are two different types of movies where you can just notice something new every time. Right. And so is Inception, but that's in a totally different way because that's just the most mainstream non-Batman movie that Nolan has. Yeah. So watching The Prestige, now I... This is, by the way, going to be spoilers for all Nolan movies. Mm-hmm. Um I try to figure out like when is each each uh, Christian Bale character, when is he each twin and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I try to notice all the little details and memento. I try to piece together how everything works linearly. Um, and it's gotten to the point now where Tenet is possibly my most anticipated movie ever that isn't like Star Wars. Right. So it's, it's just insane how much I appreciate and love love the movies he makes yeah i will add i forgot to mention i love how he also collaborates with han zimmer for his films uh six of his past eight films have been scored by zimmer uh the two exceptions are the prestige and Tenet. and Tenet was actually scheduled to be scored by zimmer but zimmer opted to do dune uh with denis villeneuve's next film instead so he's collaborated with zimmer a lot zimmer's my favorite composer so that, that definitely helps because um, he's, he's produced some great scores for Nolan's films. Yeah, his 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 scores, especially Interstellar oh, for yeah. me, are some of my favorite scores ever. Um, and yeah, he was going to do Tenet, but apparently he just couldn't turn down doing Dune. Yeah. Um, but Which... Ludwig Gorenson is going to do Tenet and he's come out and done a lot of great stuff mm-hmm. lately. Yeah, I'm sure it'll still be still be good. It'll just sound different right um, than than the other ones. So let's start by diving into Nolan's filmography. Um, we're going to talk about the shorts, his short films first, just because I want to be comprehensive. Yeah, uh, but we're not going to get really deep into them at all because he has four Tarantella, uh, Larceny, Doodlebug and Quay. Two out of those four are available on, to watch on YouTube. And that's how I saw them but I don't even know how to find the other two. So I wasn't even able to watch them. Yeah. Have you seen any of these? I have not seen his shorts. No. Okay. Yeah. Doodlebug is like a sort of experimental student film looking kind of thing. Um, It feels like something I would have watched while I was taking film classes. Yeah. Um, And not something shown to me by the teacher, something that like myself or classmates would have made. Yeah. Because, it's, it's really weird. It all takes, it's like two minutes long. It all takes place within one room. It's a guy looks like he's chasing after like a bug inside his apartment. Okay. But it turns out it's just like a smaller version of himself. Interesting. So he smacks that thing with a shoe and he's all happy that he got that. And then a larger version of himself comes and smacks him. So it's, 
and then, okay. it, and then it ends. It's really, it's really it, odd. Yeah. Huh. But it does kind of foreshadow the kinds of things that he'd get into, just like, you know, weird kind of bending yes. time and bending personhood. Yeah, perspective. and Yeah, and then the other one I saw was Quay, which was a short that he released between Interstellar and Dunkirk in 2015. Okay. It's just pretty straightforward, honestly. It's about two brothers whose last name is Quay, and they own a little shop and make handmade puppets. Okay. And it's, it's just a documentary about the two of them in their little shop. And okay. You said, so it's just a couple, is it, how long is it? It's like eight minutes. It's okay. It's on YouTube also. Just huh. Quay. Q-U-A-Y. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, but it's not really Nolan. So Yeah. It must be, it feels, feels like something he was like bored and was like, oh, I'll, I'll do this. I'm kind of between projects. I right. could do something here. So yeah. It looked like it took him like an afternoon and evening to shoot because mm-hmm. it was just the two guys talking and then he had a couple artsy shots in there but other than that it was yeah just like yeah, yeah like you said you just might as well right yeah keep, keep me busy yeah so moving on from from the the shorts two of which i can say are interesting to say the least we're going to start with following which came out in 1998 and the imdb synopsis reads a young writer who follows strangers for material meets a thief who takes him under his wing. Um, following, so a couple years ago, I did a I did a series on my blog breaking down all of Christopher Nolan's movies, but for some reason, I just skipped over following. Mm. Um, so I didn't watch it back then, and it's not in my rankings or best of list, so that needs to be fixed, and I'll I'll have yeah. I'll have something on on that soon. Uh, just a little. Heads up for anyone listening that wants to read that. But I did watch it for this podcast. And while I think it's my least favorite Christopher Nolan movie, it does foreshadow a lot of, again, a lot of stuff that he has gone on to do with his bigger, more popular, bigger budget movies. The main character's name is Mr. Cobb. It has themes about anarchy and chaos. uh, And it, kind of cuts back and forth in the timeline, the same similar ways that Memento or the prestige or Batman begins does. Yeah. And there's a Batman logo on the door of a guy's apartment. So there's just like a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's that's, and they say Cobb. That's yeah. Inception. Yeah. That's, that's his last name. That's interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. Thanks for specifying that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know. I actually saw an interview with, with Nolan one time where, um, there's also a Batman logo on a shop window in Memento. Okay. And the interviewer asked him about that. And he said, no, it wasn't per- on purpose at all, but he is a, a fan of the idea of like fatalism where mm-hmm. it's just that stuff's in his movies. And then obviously he goes on to direct the biggest, most popular Batman yeah. movies of all time. And I think I read before, like he's, he was a big Batman fan, like as a comic book growing up. So he was definitely a fan of the, of the character of the superhero, you know, growing up and something he, he was passionate about possibly doing later in his career if it came up. It's cool, too, because in that same interview, he also goes on to say that he didn't even notice it on the door. He was just like going around filming and just like, yeah, it didn't even pay any mind to it. But again, this this is pretty much effectively a student film. Like a, if a student were to make a feature, uh, he's said that, you know, it wasn't financed by a studio or anything like that. He and his friends just went out and shot 
they rented equipment and then they went around London and, and shot stuff hmm. um, for this movie. It's filmed in black and white because that was cheaper, not yeah. for any particular aesthetic reason. Yeah. He said he grew up making movies with his friends and he had these ideas, but this was the only way he could do it. But it led him to get Memento. Hmm. And the last thing I'll add is that it feels more like a blend between a Hitchcock and Nolan movie than a straightforward Nolan movie. Okay. But yeah. you've never seen... I haven't. Right? I feel like I did see like maybe a, a clip from it in one of my film classes that I took at Messiah. Like we watched a brief, a brief clip from it because I remember it being a black and white movie. So I definitely have seen like a little bit, a little piece of it, but never, never the entire film. Yeah, it's definitely. You can tell it's him, minus like anything big budget, because you can also tell it's just them going around places and shooting. Yeah, because the main character just randomly follows people. And takes pictures of them and he never follows the same person twice okay it's weird just like getting into the mindset of someone who's a little off which is yeah what nolan tends to do right right so unless you have any questions or anything to say about that we're going to move on to memento yeah that sounds good yeah memento came out in 2000 it was nolan's like we said his first uh more widely released and seen movie it has it features Guy Pierce is the main character and Carrie Ann Moss, who plays Trinity in The Matrix, the year after The Matrix came out. So that's a pretty big get at the time. But the IMDb synopsis, a man with short-term memory loss attempts to track down his wife's murderer. So I've been talking a lot. Do you want to talk a little bit about Memento? Yeah. So it's been, I, I want to say probably the last time I saw it was probably 2011, 2010, 2011. So it's been a while since I've seen it. But I remember when I was when I was watching, I was like, right after I finished it, I was like, okay, I really, I need to like process this slash mm-hmm. I need to go back and rewatch this. Um, it was, I remember it being pretty violent, especially for like, this is one of Nolan's more violent films. I mean, it's an R, R-rated film. I don't remember yeah. how much like language there is. I think it gets most of its... Uh, r-rating from its violence i think but there there is language in it but it's probably more from the violence yeah yeah um but i remember like i was like i never i've never seen a movie like this before that literally goes backwards like it was such a new i thought very creative thing uh that he did with it and uh i remember like i have to i really have to go back and rewatch it i remember not loving it like i remember thinking Besides, like having to go back and rewatch it just to get you know the gist of it, I'm like, this isn't a movie like I would see myself like buying or, uh, you know, owning myself. But um, I really liked his the uniqueness of it because of how how it's shot and the narrative style of it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I always wanted, you know, because I love Nolan so much, I wanted to see all his movies. And yeah. at the time when I first saw it, it was on Netflix, um, so I watched it and I had a similar experience to you where I was like, wow, that's super unique. I need to watch mm-hmm. it again to understand. Right. But I think I loved it right away. My mind was blown. I was like, okay. man, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, so the very next m- night, my mom is someone who I can show movies to. So the very next night I was like, mom, you need to watch this movie with me. Check us out. So I watched it two nights in a row the first time I saw it. And nice. I, I don't think I've looked back since then. It's yeah. depending on my mood. I'll say it's like a top two or three Nolan. Okay. Um, I just I I really love the way it's unique in presenting the the plot. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say it's a gimmick, but it's not a gimmick at all because it's creative problem solving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, his main character has short term memory loss, and he wants you to experience the story through his eyes, mm-hmm. and that's the best way 
to experience it. So the story uh, basically moves backwards. It's tough to explain it if you haven't seen it. Right. So it, it, so basically the end of the movie is the beginning of the movie. Right. Yeah. It alternates between color shots and black and white shots. The color shots are, or the color scenes are going from, yeah, like you said, the very last scene to the scene before it, to the scene before it, to the scene before it. That, yeah. that would have happened chronologically. And the black, black and white scenes are happening in the opposite direction. They're chronologically moving forward until at the end they meet in the middle and have the the whole theme and the whole story unlocked. Um, I really just love the idea of memory and lying to ourselves to, to bring purpose in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, because the most recent time I saw it, I rewatched all his movies ahead of this podcast. Most recent time I saw it, I really tried to pay attention to what he was saying with the movie, like what his main theme was. Right. I think it's definitely just like not always having a purpose in life. Sometimes you have to create one for yourself Mm. because by the end, Leonard Guy Pierce's character uh, realizes that he's been making this puzzle for himself. He's been leaving clues for himself to find, to find his wife's murderer. Um, and then he just chooses to forget it yeah. because he wants to give himself purpose in life because if his wife is dead and he has short-term memory loss, what is the point of continuing? Right. So it's, it's really interesting to explore the themes in that, yeah. that regard. Yeah. I, and this is like part of what Nolan does is like, you know, he presents the narrative backwards. I like how he doesn't prevent, he doesn't present just mindless entertainment, you know, like mm-hmm. he makes, he makes us, us work in a movie, which I like, you know, he makes us, you have to sometimes stretch our minds. And this is one of those movies where it's like, you have to, you have to concentrate on it. You can't be, you know, doing the dishes and watching it at the same time. You know, you have to actually like sit down and, you know, take it in. And I, I do appreciate that. And I like that how most of his movies, you can't just sit down and, you know, unless you've seen it multiple times, you, know, you can't just sit down and say, oh, I'm going to do this while watching this movie. You know, you have to actually invest in a, in this movie and see what he's saying to you in, in the movie. So I really like that he's not just out there providing mindless entertainment because while sometimes it's okay to, you know, it's fine to watch a movie where you can turn your brain off and just be entertained. Like I still appreciate movies that make you think and make you ponder about big ideas and make you, make you work for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what he does so well is he kind of masquerades uh, mindless entertainment yeah. as something that'll make you think. Mm-hmm. Because at first glance, it's a Batman movie, or it's just like an action movie, right? Um, or like a, a space movie with Interstellar. But you sit down thinking that's what you're getting into if you don't know anything about Nolan. Mm-hmm. But by the end, you realize that it's about so much more. And that's what I appreciate. Right. And like you were saying earlier, even through multiple rewatches, most of his movies, you're getting something new from each from each rewatch. You're not just sitting there and saying, okay, I've seen this before, but you can actually get new, new things and re- get new, get new material from rewatching his movies, which I also love. Yeah. And I have a couple comments to make about that, but I'm going to save them for when we say, when we get to inception, Okay, uh, yeah. because there's some specific things to address there. Oh yeah. So did you have anything else to say about Memento? Um, no, I, I think that was it. It's definitely one, like, I definitely want to rewatch it here at some point. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere. Like it's not one that I actually own. So I'd have to find it streaming somewhere. It's probably somewhere. There's like 20 streaming services nowadays, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely one I want to rewatch and, uh, check it out. But yeah. But yes, 
Memento is one that I would completely recommend to anybody who wants to think while watching a movie and anybody who is into a crime movie. Mm-hmm. Because I think Memento deals with both of those perfectly. And speaking about crime movies, in 2002, Nolan came out with Insomnia, which the synopsis from IMDb reads, two LA homicide detectives are dispatched to a northern town in Alaska where the sun doesn't set to investigate the methodical murder of a local teen. Um, I'll just say right off the bat, I think this is probably my least favorite Nolan. Okay. Um, I don't tend to get into movies like, or TV shows or movies like, you know, NCIS or CSI or, or just any sort of crime investigation show. Yeah. And that's kind of what this is. Um, he doesn't, he tells it in a straightforward way. He doesn't really make you think in too many different ways. Like you, you've gotten used to with Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time you weren't used to it when it came out because he didn't have that many, but at this point going back to watch it, it's kind of a disappointment like okay. in the context of his other movies. Yeah. It's, it's not one that I've, I have seen. I do watch NCIS. I still keep up with NCIS. That's the only crime show I really watch. Like I don't watch law and order or some, any of those other ones, but I do watch NCIS. So I think at some point it's definitely one I'll, I'll check out, but not one. I'm like, Oh my goodness, that's set this on my list to watch tomorrow. You know, at some right. point I'm sure I'll, I'll get to it, but um memento would definitely be ahead of ahead of insomnia here it is in color right yeah yeah it's in color um it's the movie is fine like it's not bad it's just i I was sitting there i've only seen it twice i was sitting there watching it the second time and i was just kind of really bored yeah al pacino was the lead and robin williams is the villain so it has a pretty good cast a list cast there and hillary swank is like a She's like a rookie cop okay, in this small Alaska town where a murder is obviously like out of the question for them. That's why they needed to have two L.A. homicide cops to come in and invest, investigate for them. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's just not great. Um, it's solid at best. But he followed that up with Batman Begins in 2005. Yes. And this is where we're going to break quickly from the chronological Discussion of his movies, we're just going to talk about all three Batman movies, one after another here. Um, So if you haven't seen Batman Begins, the synopsis reads, After training with his mentor, Batman begins to fight to free crime-ridden Gotham City from corruption. Uh, Why don't you start talking about Batman Begins? Yeah, this is one, I mean, I actually remember, I believe I actually watched The Dark Knight before I watched Batman Begins. I kind of saw them out of order there, but... um, Going back, like Batman Begins, yeah, it's really, I mean, it was really Nolan's breakthrough film. It really, it really redefined the superhero genre because it, it put it all in a very grounded reality, like a very, a Gotham where you could actually see this could actually be a real Gotham city. This, this could actually happen. And I think Batman was a perfect superhero for Nolan to take on because he's not Superman. He doesn't have any flying. He doesn't have any, any powers. You know, he's an actual just normal human being that just has access to these you know, these high tech gadgets that he uses to to do his work. So he's just a normal human being without any powers. So that makes it feel all the more real and grounded. And 
this was a movie that really audiences had never had never seen before. Because before this, most superhero movies had this very fantastical nature to them. You know, right. you look at the, at the 90s Batman movies, like it had a very fantastical nature to them where they weren't really grounded in any kind of sense of reality, which people were, were okay with. But I think people were also ready to see a very different kind of superhero movie that subverted those those kind of notions and expectations. Um, I think uh, Brian, Brian Singer did it a bit with the X-Men franchise. Um, he, you know, X-Men came out in 2000, then he had X2 in 2002. Um, I think those were definitely a, a start in the right direction for these kinds of movies where it focused more on the characters. They were more character-driven type of movies, but no one really put it, put it on a whole new level with Batman Begins because his characters are just normal human beings. They don't have any powers. And so this was a movie I really, I really liked it because it also got into some real issues of loss, grief, guilt, and morality, and really humanized Bruce Wayne a lot. And he just, you made him feel like, oh, this, this is me. Like I can empathize with this, with mm -hmm. this person. Um, I will say that like, going back, rewatching it, you know, his action sequences, this was his first, his, his first major scale film. So his action sequences aren't as sharp or as strong as what he got into the dark night, he was kind of getting his feet wet with these kinds of, kind of action sequences. Um, there is like some CGI, like with the train, you can tell like, oh, okay, this is very artificial yeah. looking. But I mean, I kind of give him some grace there because this was a major undertaking, you know, for yeah. to do to tackle to tackle Batman, a major a major superhero that has a lot of a big following um, for a director who hasn't done this kind of move before. I think it was a major major undertaking. I think he did very very well with it. And it was just a, really a stepping stone for The Dark Knight, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, but it's still, Batman Begins, still a very entertaining film, very thought-provoking, very relevant themes, well-crafted characters. And I thought I thought it was a, it was a very solid film. And I liked yeah. the, dark, the darkness of it, too. I liked it. it was a very dark film. Like, even this going, like, theme-wise, but also, like, cinematography. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of the movie takes place at night, which was perfect for the Batman character. Right, and so I liked it. it had it had this dark, dark, this darker tone to it. Everything wasn't so brightly lit, and you know it wasn't like a comedy or anything like that. Like it had very, dealt with very serious, serious issues. So, yeah, yeah. There's some movies that I've seen so many times that, like, it's hard for me to remove myself and just like take a step back and look at it through you know a wider lens. Right, and the Batman Begins and and Dark Knight and. uh Dark Knight Rises, like a lot of Nolan movies are like that for me. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was rewatching Batman Begins just a couple weeks ago, I was trying really hard to be like, okay, let's look at this objectively right. and see what he's really trying to say. Because this is one where I was just like, it's a great Batman movie. I, I have so much experience with it that it like starting at a young age that I don't always know exactly what the director and the writers are saying with the movie. Yeah. Um, that's something I'm, I've only learned to do as I've gotten older. Um, so obviously something that came out when I was nine or 10, I'm not going to understand all the themes about right. grief and anger and everything right. we were talking about. But not only is this groundbreaking for the superhero genre, like you were talking about, but is a genuinely great movie that officially put Nolan on the map. It was like his official arrival where he said, okay, I'm here pay attention to me as a, you know, as a big time director. Yeah. Um, and one other thing I want to mention that I'm, now that I'm talking about this in that sort of case, a lot of times these days, 
crazy projects will get thrown at directors as soon as they like come on and say, Hey, look, I can do this. Um, and then a lot of times they'll crash and burn. Yeah. But one of the great things about Nolan is that he writes his own movies. Um, other than the prestige, he's written all of his movies. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Most of the time he even collaborates with his brother, Jonathan Nolan, who Mm -hmm. like he does Jonathan Nolan created Westworld. He's done his own projects, but he normally co-writes it with his brother too, which is pretty cool. Right. And it just shows that like he has his heart and soul in it. Not like he's taking someone else's work that a studio pitched to him. He, he is so creative and knows exactly what he wants to do for each specific movie. Right. Um, But yeah, when I rewatched Batman Begins, it was somehow better than I remembered it being. I, I don't even know how, because I've always loved Batman Begins. Yeah. Like I said, for a while, this was tied for my favorite trilogy. Um, but just the way that it deals with Bruce's grief and the way and his anger at his parents' death and the way that he goes about that, yeah. um, he has he has to learn a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Rachel is a really important character that helps him learn all those things in this movie. Yeah. The it's not what I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. That line is pretty much the heart of the movie because mm-hmm. you can say I'm this person or I know that I'm a good person. But if you're not, you know, walking that walk, uh, talking the talk doesn't really mean anything. So Bruce has to learn to walk the walk instead of letting it all just take him over and having him turn into the Joker. Yeah. Uh, He redirects his feelings into something positive of like cleaning up the city of Gotham that he loves so much. And he kind of, you know, he honors his parents and doing so at the same time. Right. And, yeah, that leads to the very next thing I was going to say, which is the why do we fall line, which was his father first said, Thomas Wayne first said to Bruce when he was a kid. That that line, the why do we fall so we can learn to pick ourselves back up and the it's not who I am underneath line. I just love the intersection of those two things to create one unifying theme of, you know, learning to get better and doing something not just good, but doing something like helpful for the people around you. And for in Bruce Wayne's case, he has the influence to help the whole city and the society around him. Yeah. But as for Nolan and his filmmaking style, this is even in the same, you know, family, I guess you could say as stuff like the prestige or memento where he's cutting between Bruce training, right. uh, With the league of shadows Bruce's time as Batman and Bruce's time as a kid. It's yeah. not linear. He, no, he's he, jumping all over the place. Yeah. Um, I think the Dark Knight is probably the first one that was like linear. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah. trying to think here. I don't think the Dark Knight jumps time at all. I'm trying to think it was even, I mean, I guess there are, there are a few, maybe at the, at, towards the end, there's a few, a few shots like of Alfred burning the letter, you know, stuff like that. But for the most part, yeah, it's a very, very linear, linear film. Yeah, The Dark Knight. Do you have anything else to say about Batman Begins? Uh, nope. I think I think that was all I had. All right, so let's start talking about The Dark Knight now. Yeah, The Dark Knight. It intercuts like you were just talking about. Like it has the voiceover with Jim Gordon at the end, right? You know, saying a, he's a silent guardian, watch, watchful protector, a Dark Knight. Um, while it's cutting to. Yeah, Alfred burning the letter, Bruce or Batman running away, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. I think everything happens in sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, again, I've been talking for a while. So do you want to start by talking about Dark Knight? Yeah, the Dark Knight, um, it's definitely, it's my favorite superhero film, superhero film to date. I I consider this film, honestly, I consider this film, film a masterpiece. And I don't use that word lightly. I don't throw around that, that, that word lightly at all. There's very few films that I would qualify as a masterpiece, but I honestly think The Dark Knight is one of those films. I think I think it's very close to being flawless, actually. Um, I And a lot of it draws from the themes and the cultural relevance that are very relevant today, painfully relevant, actually, um, especially the year, the year 2020, um, how... You know, it's, this goes really from the Joker's, the Joker, the interrogation scene, the famous interrogation scene where the Joker right. really shows, you know, he tells Batman, this is how society actually operates. This is how society is. This is how humans are. You know, people can act all civil and everything when things are going right. But when things, the slightest hint, when th- hint of things going wrong, that's when society starts to crumble. And that's when people start getting desperate and they start acting out in ways that you never would have thought they would have. And this is actually a movie I actually rewatched whenever the pandemic hit. Uh, my brother and I actually rewatched it because I'm like, this is so. This movie is so relevant for what's happening right now. When I mm-hmm. see, when I see saw people, you know, footage of people raiding stores for toilet paper and people fighting over toilet paper, you know, that type of thing. It's it's like this is what it becomes when the stakes are raised and people's people think you know their, their lives are in danger or families are in danger or things like that happen people act in ways that you never ever would have thought they would have they, you would have thought oh this person behaves this way normally they're a good person they wouldn't do this but in actually in all actuality they would once the stakes become raised and i think the joker's philosophy on how humans operate is is so true and so relevant and continues to be relevant in our world today and that's one of the reasons why that's the primary reason why I think this movie is such a masterpiece is, is because despite being a superhero film, you know, and being a very entertaining film, there is a lot in this movie, a lot of truth in this movie that uh, that that just makes it makes it so much more rewarding whenever you watch it. It's not just about, you know, the characters or the action, you know, which it does mm-hmm. have you know great action sequences, you know, yep. uh, but underneath it, there's so much more underneath Um much like you know Batman himself, you know there's so much mm-hmm. more under, under, underneath, and uh, that you can glean from this from this movie. And I think this was just the, this absolute height of no one's no one's career. I think not that I think he's going downhill or anything, but I think this is definitely at the, he's at the very top of his game in this movie. He just hits hits all the right buttons. You know I mentioned before the action, uh, you know using practical stunts, the explosion, the hospital, using a real you know, explosion, you know, blowing up a real hospital, uh, not actual hospital, but you know what I mean, you know, blowing up a real right, building. Um, any other, if, if, this, if this movie was in any other director's hands, I honestly think it would have been done with CGI or even like the truck flip sequence. That does mm-hmm. not happen in a movie. You don't do that in a movie. You use CGI if you want to flip a semi-truck, you know, especially yes. in downtown Chicago. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just doesn't happen. And so that's something I really, like I said, I really appreciate no one does. He likes to do things in camera. The opening sequence to this movie, I think, is one of the best opening scenes to any movie ever because it shows the, the Joker's character, who he is right off the bat. Uh, it shows like how chaotic he is, how you just don't know what to expect from him. Uh, it just sets up his character beautifully in a very, very strong, bold manner. And I love the introduction of the Joker in this in this movie. Um, I did talk about you know how no one cross cuts and 
in this movie, this is my favorite example of how he cross cuts. And it's the scene where like, he's trying to rescue Batman's trying to rescue Rachel and uh, you know, Gordon, the, he cross cuts to Gordon and, and Harvey and Rachel and jo- you know, the Joker and himself. And, you know, they're all trying to get to Rachel and you have, you know, you have them both trying to get there at the same time and you have the clock ticking and it is so, so suspenseful. And I just, I love, this is my favorite example of him of how he cross cuts to build suspense. And of course, you know, it's powered by Nolan or by uh, Hans Zimmer's score um, as well as I, I will say, this was also co co-scored by James Newton Howard. I think sometimes people forget that, but it was also co-scored by James Newton Howard. So I don't want to leave him out. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a great, great sequence, that sequence of rescuing or trying to rescue Rachel, you know, and then of course having the twist of, oh, the Joker actually gave him uh, Harvey's address, not Rachel's on top of everything. And right. so I just think, I just think this movie, it just does so many, so many things, right. That makes, makes it so entertaining, but also so, uh, so thought provoking, so real, so culturally relevant that says a, bit, a lot about our society and about humanity and that's why I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that, the cross-cutting scene. Uh, I think that one is, is perfect, that yeah. the whole sequence. But I think he does it even better in a future movie that I'll talk about later. Okay, all um, right. I'm not saying this is bad at all. I'm just saying he's yeah. so good at like that style of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to agree with you completely on the, the societal commentary. Um, I'm going to just bounce off what you were saying because you're completely right about everything you're saying about, you know, the Joker talking about society crumbling, dropped at the first sign of trouble, all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is that Batman believes in people's inherent good while Joker wants to believe or wants to prove that anyone can fall. Mm -hmm. So Joker uses Harvey Dent, Gotham's white knight, who is the, the biggest ray of hope in Gotham is how somehow they put it like that at some point in the movie. Yeah. He's been a ray of hope in, in Gotham ever since he came up and became DA and started cleaning up the streets. But the Joker was like, even this pinnacle of just goodness, he can be brought down to the lowest level. All you need is a little push. Right. You know, Madness is like gravity. All exactly. A little push. Yeah. I, I just keep saying lines and they're just lines from the movie because Nolan deals with everything in this movie in his yeah. screenplay. So there's a line in La La Land where Ryan Gosling said, Hollywood worships everything and values nothing. When I was preparing for this and writing stuff down, I thought of Joker saying, their morals, their code, it's a bad joke, dropped at the first sign of trouble. You know, those two lines are similar to me because whereas Ryan Gosling is talking about Hollywood, the Joker is kind of making that point about humanity just in general. Yeah. Um, He's just saying people don't really value anything except for themselves. Uh, when these, when the chips are down, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. Right. You know, yeah. because that means everybody is only looking out for themselves. Yeah. Um, the Joker, he's incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why he's a perfect villain. He's smart and he uses his brains, but just something in his path made him so that he's cynical as opposed to Batman slash Bruce Wayne's hopeful. Yeah. Um, but I, right. I do love that the movie ends on a positive and hopeful note. Yes. Yeah. And I love, this is something I also wanted to talk about is because mm-hmm. I think, you know, 
I think the Joker is such a strong antagonist. Now, of course, we can talk all day about how great Heath Ledger is. Uh, I think he's still my favorite Joker to date. Uh, how how you how he played and reinvented you know the Joker and everything. How it's so different from other portrayals. But just how the Joker character is written as an antagonist. You know, when you look at you know how a screenplay should be written. You know, you want your antagonist to be very strong, but you want him to be able to attack your hero's greatest weaknesses. Right. And he really attacks Bruce Wayne in this movie. He, you know, he forces him into a corner many times. That he, yeah, he attacks his moral code about not killing, about not killing people. So he exploits that very heavily in many, in many scenes, and into not revealing his identity. So he uses that against him. So he's, he's basically he knows what Batman believes in, and so he attacks that in every way he can to get what he wants, and. Um, and ultimately, also another thing you want for your antagonist is for your antagonist and hero to be ultimately be competing for the same goal at the end of the movie or mm-hmm. during the movie, really, because that brings them into constant conflict with, with each other. And really, the souls of Gotham. Yeah, it, it's literally they, they stated directly in the movie at the end. You know, when the uh, Joker is hanging there, um, it's really the whole battle. It's a battle for Gotham's soul, and that's really what they're both after. And that's why they, you know, they're constantly coming into conflict with each other and i think that's that's so well it's just so well written and executed how the, those two characters what the joker is after what batman's after and how they interact with each other because of that yeah and that's why i love that it ends on a positive note too uh yeah. because after all this after joker's made so many like accurate points about humanity that like right. you said we're seeing coming true right now Mm -hmm. um batman still says this city is full of people ready to believe in good um and as he's going off taking the blame for the death of harvey dent jim gordon is saying his whole speech about he's the hero gotham needs right now and all that kind of stuff right um he's a silent guardian watchful watchful protector a dark knight um that even just gives me chills while i'm talking about it and it's hot in my apartment right now. yeah yeah um (laughs) it's Everything about the themes of this movie just works so perfectly. And like you've said a few times, it's just perfect for this moment in time right now. Right. And I do want to agree about Heath Ledger easily being the best Joker. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last 35 years, there have been four different live action Jokers with Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, Jared Leto, and Joaquin Phoenix. Right. Um, I think Nicholson is fine. He's He's good, but the movie around him, I don't think is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously this one is great. It's perfect. Suicide Squad, I think, is like trash that can be thrown out right away. Yeah, I have seen that one once and probably not going back to that one. Exactly. And then Joker, I think we haven't talked about this, you and I personally, but I think I've heard you talk about Joker. I don't like Joker at all, the movie. Yeah. Um, but I do like Joaquin Phoenix as Joker. But mm-hmm. I think that still the themes and like the characterization in Dark Knight is so is done so much better. Right. than it is in 2019's Joker. And I do like in The Dark Knight how they leave the you know Joker's his, his past a complete mystery. You have no idea what his past is. And I like how they you know play on that with whenever he says, you know, you know how I got these scars and every time with a different mm-hmm. story. Like I love how they they leave that mystery. You have no idea where how this guy came to be, how he is. And because it's not really it's not important for this story. Um and I think the, right. the mystery the mystery really adds to it, adds to his character a lot. Right, because the idea is how his ideals will shape Batman and Harvey Dent. Right. Because I think it turns out in the end, 
Harvey Dent is the actual villain of the movie while Joker is kind of just this agent of chaos. Right. Yeah. Harvey represents the system that can be so easily and visibly corrupted while Batman is the avatar for the people uh, who, despite everything around around him, refuses to be corrupted. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's just showing that with Harvey, the system can be corrupted easily, but the system is made up of people. And people, if we refuse to be corrupted, then we won't go down the same path as Harvey Dent. Mm-hmm. And I will say one thing, one scene I really like that's, it's kind of like, a, I think a very underrated acting moment by Heath Ledger is whenever at the, at the very end, when he's waiting for the fairies to explode and it doesn't happen, he has this look on his face, like what, why isn't this happening? How yeah. it's the first time the Joker has ever been wrong about something like he thought mm. this would work. And it's the very first time where he's caught off guard and he's wrong about about how this would turn out because he did not, he brought his own detonator, but he really did not expect this to happen. And I just, I love that moment. I just wanted to give a little shout out to that moment because I think it's a very underrated acting scene by, by Heath Ledger. Just that, that stunned look on his face where he's like, well, why, why is this? Yeah. Now what, you know? Um, yeah. I just, it's just a great, great movie. Great performances all around. Uh, you know, obviously he let Heath Ledger is the highlight. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a hugely entertaining movie for so many reasons. It's you know there's a lot under the under under the surface and just just a masterpiece. I think. I agree. And if we wanted to, we could spend an hour and a half talking about just the Dark Knight instead oh, yeah. of Christopher Nolan in general. Yep. Uh, but the last thing I'll add about it is that even if you don't see or appreciate the intricate themes that are woven in throughout the entire story, it's still just a super fun crime yeah. movie. Right. A super fun Batman movie. And I think it's uh, a very well-paced movie too. I think it's yeah. clocked in around two hours or so, but it's, I think it's very well-paced. There's not really any wasted, wasted time. It's very, you know, clean cut, intricate. And yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're listening to this podcast, if you haven't seen the dark Knight, but if you haven't go watch Batman begins first or do what Anthony did and watch dark Knight first. It doesn't matter because yeah. that's another great thing. It works well on its own. Right. So let's move on. 2012, The Dark Knight Rises. Yes. Eight years after the Joker's reign of anarchy, Batman, with the help of the enigmatic Catwoman, is forced from his exile to save Gotham City from the brutal guerrilla terrorist Bane. The Dark Knight Rises is one that I've gone back and forth on a lot. When I first saw it, I saw it again at a drive-in, actually. Um, And I was ready to say that it was better than The Dark Knight, just because Mm -hmm. at that point in my life, the big bombastic finale just always got me. Yes. Anytime there was like a series of movies like this, like star Wars or Lord of the Rings or, or Batman, it would always just elevate in quality for me just because I just wanted more, wanted more, wanted more. Yeah. So for a while, the dark Knight rises was my favorite of the trilogy. And then for whatever reason, I just went a while without seeing it. And then I watched it again and I said, man, this is like we were saying, like I was saying with insomnia, this yeah. isn't very good in the context of Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that was a couple years ago was the last time I saw it when I was writing that, that series that I was talking about earlier on Nolan. And then yeah. I came back to it again a couple years later for this podcast. And now my thought is it's still lower tier Nolan, but I still really, really love watching it. Yes. Um, because Bane, I think Bane just makes the movie. He is. Um, Tom, Tom Hardy. Hardy is just hamming it up. Yeah, yeah. Just 
his his speech outside Blackgate Prison mm-hmm. is what makes it for me. That's when he's like, I'm fully leaning into this character, and I'm just gonna do whatever the heck I want. And just like yeah. he does all that stuff with his head shaking and and his accent and his eyes right. is just he's just insane in this movie. And he's so much fun to quote. There's mm-hmm. just so much greatness about Bane, even though the movie doesn't make sense. So in a lot yeah. of ways, I think. yes, yes. I'm gonna ask you one question about it though. Yeah, because I I really don't know. What do you think The Dark Knight Rises is saying? Because we thought we 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 gave answers like very clear answers for Batman Begins and Dark Knight. But what do you think yeah. for this one? I think I think I mean I think it's still it does it does kind of recycle some themes. You know, obviously from from Batman Begins. You know, whenever you are, you know, why do you fall? That type of thing. Especially when he's in the pit and he's at his lowest point. You know. He thinks mm-hmm. Gotham's going to burn and he really has to, you know, even, they even have a flashback sequence of his father, you know, saying, you know, why do we fall, you know? And right. it's really about, you know, when you're at your darkest depths, you know, figuring out who you are, why you, why you set out to do what you want to do in life, I think. Um, and also being able to pass the torch on to someone else when you feel that either you can't satisfactorily do the job anymore or you feel like you just think it's time for it's time to be moving on and to to pass pass the torch per se you know um onto someone else to the next generation because that's ultimately what happens in the end you know he he uh gives the reins over to uh forget his name joseph gordon levitt's character john blake slash robin yes uh, yeah, so it doesn't have as much. Definitely doesn't have as much to say as what you know the Dark Knight does, or even Batman Begins. But it is, is I think, is it's very much about you know coming to terms whenever whenever you're at that point in life of how you want to pass on your knowledge and what you've earned onto somebody else, and how you how you how you want to continue your your life, even though you're at the end of of your life, even though you know Bruce Wayne's not old in this movie you know he's not going to die tomorrow mm-hmm. but he's still at that point like i need i want to retire i need to move on to something else so how do i pass on what i am so passionate about and how do i do that in a way that's going to be successful um and good for the good of other people right and yeah that's why for me the dark knight rises is like i feel like batman begins and the dark knight are a genius in what they're saying and what they're doing yeah. in a filmmaking standpoint but i think at this point Nolan had made the first two Batman movies, the prestige and inception. Mm-hmm. So Warner bros was just like, do whatever you want. We're not going to hinder yeah. you. Like, right. you know what you're doing, obviously. So I think he just went a little bit overboard because it's almost three hours long. Yes. Um, and the scale, he really ups the scale on, on this, you know, you have right. the flying, I forget, is it called the bat pod? Uh, yep. Yes. You have, you have that, which, is undeniably very very cool but it, i think it is a bit it is a bit much you know looking back on it even though back in when i first watched the theater i'm like oh my goodness this is so cool and he does he does really almost cross that line of being okay this is this is just too much you know, i like the smaller this the scale in the dark knight was fine but he really felt the need to i need to end this in a very very epic epic scale because this is the conclusion to my trilogy i really need to do everything in this movie um when i really don't think he really had to do that um no i will say this even though i liked Anne hathaway as catwoman i really don't think she was needed in this movie like i would i would have been fine without having catwoman in this movie i think you have enough characters there besides her um 
for this movie. But um, not that I don't like Catwoman or anything, you know, or in Hathaway. Like I said, I think Hathaway did a, a good job in the character. But uh, yeah, I just think it does have an overstuffed, overstuffed feeling to it in some ways. And it's definitely not as flawless. I'll kind of th- throw out here what I thought when I first saw it. You know, I thought this mm-hmm. was, I thought, I was like, this is everything I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be epic. I wanted it to be, you know, a very large scale epic. I loved Hans Zimmer's score once again. And it's definitely like looking back on it, it's definitely a step down from The Dark Knight, which arguably like it's like how can you top it's like there's only exactly. so much you can do to top the dark yeah. knight like there's not a whole lot of ceiling space to actually go beyond the dark knight because mm-hmm. dark knight is so good it's like there was not much option but to take a step down after um af- after the dark knight yeah. so i can't entirely blame him for that because it was such a good movie um i thought bane despite a great performance by tom hardy i thought bane was definitely a weaker villain than the joker just because He's just more of a physical threat, which, you know, is fine and everything, but there's really not, I mean, it's part of his character. It's just, he doesn't play the mental game with, with Bruce. I think it, things are a lot more compelling whenever Bruce and the Joker were having, were battling this mental game, this psychological warfare almost in, in the Dark Knight. And Bane is just more of a physical imposing presence. And while he does have, you know, plans, plans this movie and he does execute some, you know, disastrous plans, um, it's just more surface surface level stuff and mm-hmm. it's just not as compelling as what the joker is in the dark knight um it's just and just the movie overall i don't think is as refined or as intricate as what what the dark knight is it does have some great action sequences a great opening scene once again uh done yeah. practically yep. like that's a great opening scene i love that they use actual plane they actually did that in camera i love that and, and again it introduces it introduces the villain right off the bat i love that he did that back-to-back movies he he introduces villain in the opening scene and i did like how i love the ending how it, it really completed bruce wayne's character arc very very well i thought you know this is something he wanted to do from the beginning you know, he had thoughts of like how long do i want to do this how do i pass this on to somebody else i don't want to be doing this the rest of my life and i thought that it really ended his character on a very high note and uh, yeah, I really like the way the film handled handled his his character in the end. Yeah, that's the thing about it is that it's really really fun to watch, and it really is satisfying yeah. with the character stuff. But it's just so overstuffed, and I think it's just a lot of it. No one couldn't get out of his own way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I I love the last like seven minutes from when the bomb explodes over the harbor. Yes, just. There we go again. It's the voiceover. Nolan does that all the time. The voiceover through the over the cross cutting. Um, right, right. Yeah, I just love. Uh, who is it? Jim Gordon is reading the excerpt from A Tale of Two Cities, I think. Yeah. And yeah, and then we see Alfred saying, "I failed you," and then all of a sudden the mu- music changes and gets a little bit more hopeful. Mm-hmm. When you realize that there's a, a string of pearls that wasn't on the manifest, yes, and right, you get all excited again. I'm like, oh, well, maybe, maybe he's he's alive. And yeah, I, I agree. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this movie is that I think it's Hans Zimmer's best work in the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he does a great job all three in all three of them, and James Newton Howard. Yeah, but I think this one to mix in the the rise chant. Yes just how he does that um, because it's easier for me to listen to 
like if you just play a, a score in the background, that's easier to listen to than like the Joker's high streak. And but he does he does a similar thing where it's like like just like building up the tension and and the dark knight rises i think it's easily his best work of the trilogy and that's man it's just i think it fits the movie so well especially like i said in that last closing sequence i'll say it's a good batman film and an okay nolan film Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah Um, yeah i'd agree with that yeah So then moving on to The Prestige, which came out between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight in 2006. IMDb says, after a tragic accident, two stage magicians engage in a battle to create the ultimate illusion while sacrificing everything they have to outwit each other. Uh, And you talked about The Prestige a little bit at the beginning of this because this was the first Nolan movie you saw. But it stars Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. And while... I had seen the Batman movies and the Wolverine, like Wolverine and X-Men movies when I first saw the prestige. I wasn't thinking of that at all when I first saw the movie, because I think they're both so good as their characters. Yeah. I think Christian Bale disappears into every single role that he, he's, he's fantastic. I haven't seen the bad performance from him yet. So yeah, I'm never thinking like, oh, this is Batman as Dick Cheney, or this is Batman as Patrick Bateman or anything. It's like, right. this is a different character every time. Yeah. But yeah, these two are are great, great leads. And I don't think Hugh Jackman is a great actor. Maybe I shouldn't say that too loud. Mm-hmm. But I, I do like him a lot in this movie. This is my first one where I realized I can just watch this one over and over and kind of realize new things. Yeah. Because... We'll get to it next, but Inception is one where I'm trying to understand just like the rules of everything every time. Yes. But like Memento and the Prestige, I'm just, that's where I'm noticing new things as opposed to trying to understand the rules of the universe. It has the themes of obsession and rivalry taking over your life and the themes of identity. Um, I think it's really intricate and well done. And I love the use of magic that turns out to just be science fiction when at first glance, you might think it's actual magic. Yeah. Because there again, Nolan is still just grounding his movies in some sort of reality. He does more science fiction based stuff than, than fantasy. Um, He's not saying that Nikola Tesla was an actual wizard. He's saying that he's an incredible genius. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't have like a ton to say about the prestige. I think, like I said, it's great. It's one of my probably top, 25 or 30 favorite movies of all time um i think the two leads are great i think michael kane is great uh, in something completely different than what he's known for with christopher nolan at least because he's he has like eight thousand imdb credits um but yeah i i just love the prestige what do you think yeah this is one like i said earlier like i really liked this one i love that it was like you were saying it's 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 set in like the late 19th century so it has this very grounded look to it even though mm-hmm. he also layers in the sci-fi as well uh, from tesla's character and his machine um i like the steampunk aesthetic which if anybody's not familiar with steampunk it's like a subgenre of sub of sci-fi that deals with you know the creation of machines, the inner work, and takes a look at the inner inner workings of the machines themselves, like the gears and everything like that. And this movie really, really sh- showcases that uh, very well with the with the machine that the Tesla creates for uh, Hugh Jackman's character and Gear. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, great performances. I love the the twists and turns along the way. You really don't know where the story, how it'll end up. I love that the twist of this movie, like it's literally something that's presented very early in the movie where it's uh, Alfred, not Alfred, Michael Caine's character. You know, he says he's using, he's using a double, which he is. Like the twist is literally given to us in the very very early in the movie, but we choose not to accept it. We think no, there's got to be something else, even though it's it, it's literally his his twin brother. Um, so I love I love where I love the twist. I love the themes you know that deal with the cost of success when someone is so driven to succeed like in a career or anything, like how far are they going to go? And will that path lead ultimately lead to self-destruction, which it does. And then Jigger's case, he's, he's so obsessed with besting Borden and being the, you know, the best magician. Um, and of course, part of that stems from his, the death of his wife or his girlfriend. I forget if they were actually married, but wife, uh, yep. his wife. Yeah. And so a part of that plays a part, in it as well, but just his obsession with being the best and getting the best of Borden, which he thinks he, he thinks he does until the very end, you know, and this constant battle between the two characters. I love it's just so engaging, fascinating, and really keeps you it's it's suspenseful and it keeps you really, really engaged in the film. Um, I think this is a movie that really doesn't get as much attention from Nolan's filmography. Like you hear a lot, of, of course, about the Dark Knight trilogy and Inception even Interstellar and, you know, Dunkirk, but really I think sometimes people forget he did the prestige as well. You know, this is, uh, it's a very well-made film. Um, no, it doesn't have the Hans, Hans Zimmer score, the signature Hans Zimmer score or anything like that. Um, it's not, it's, I think it's not one of his more well-known films, but it's a very, very good film that he made between Batman Begins and Dark Knight. And, um, yeah, I don't miss a Hans Zimmer score in this though. No, no, it's, I think it works perfectly without it. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't need a big in-your-face kind of score. This is more like this is probably the most character-driven, other than Memento, mm-hmm. out of all of his big movies. It is so much in the minds of Angier and Borden that yeah. you don't need, and there's like no big action sequences either. So right, yeah, there's not really a place for for Zimmer to come a, in. Right, it is more of a drama. You know, it has sci-fi, but it is more of a character-driven drama, mm-hmm. and um, I think sometimes. People forget it's not an actually technically even original film, so it's a bit of a departure there. It's it's a based on a book called The Prestige. Right. Um, I forget how closely like how closely it follows the book. I'm not sure. I never read the book itself, but it, it's based on a book. Um, so so there's that. So it is a bit of a departure there, but I think it's I think it's very well very well crafted and executed. And I'd be curious to go and read the book because. Yeah he definitely puts his signature signature touch on it mm-hmm. with how the story is presented because again, he hops timelines. Yeah. I think we both really love this one. Yeah. Um, we'll give our rankings later, but we're getting to the point where all of these at some point or another, were in my top three or so Nolan mm-hmm. movies. Oh yeah. Because it almost depends on which one I've watched last as for which one I love the most at that sort of yeah. time. Yeah, because preparing for this, I was like, man, I just want to turn on the Dark Knight right now. Mm-hmm. And now I'm thinking about just watching Interstellar because, yeah, they're all just so good. So that'll take us to 2010 with Inception, where the IMDb synopsis reads: A thief who steals corporate secrets through the use of dream sharing technology is given the infer- inverse task of planting an idea into the mind of a CEO. Uh, I've said this a lot before, but. If the Lord of the Rings movies didn't exist, 
and I pretty much find a way to bring up Lord of the Rings in every podcast because I love yep. it so much. Yeah, but not if Lord of the Rings didn't exist, then Inception would be my favorite movie. Lord of the Rings is just so ingrained into who I am that it can never be yeah. top. But Inception yeah. is just incredible, man. Every time I watch it, I I kid you not, I learn something new. Mm-hmm. Um, every time I think I've got it, either something is proved, like something about what I thought I knew was wrong, or um. I just learned more about what I didn't realize before. Yeah. And this is what I wanted to, to talk about earlier on. Whereas Memento and the prestige, you can go back and be like, Oh, I just noticed this, which I didn't notice the other times. Yeah. But the biggest um, knock on inception that I've seen is that the point isn't to go back and notice new things is that the plot is just too convoluted and crazy and doesn't actually make sense. So you have to go back and watch it. Mm-hmm. to understand what's happening. And I think I disagree because I think it makes sense. I think yeah. Nolan knew exactly what he was trying to do. He had this whole this whole universe and idea uh, dreamt up, no pun intended. He knew exactly where, where he was going with this. So I, I think it's the same thing as the prestige and memento for me, where every time I watch it, I just notice something new. I'll let you talk about it a little bit before we get into our, our theories on inception. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean this, like I said earlier, this is still my favorite film of all time. Uh, I think the concept is just incredibly unique and original. There's really, when I try to think of what's a movie like inception, there's nothing really that I've been able to compare it to. It's really in a league of its own. You could maybe argue the matrix or something along those lines, but this is a movie that really, there's nothing, there's no other movie like this movie. And I think it's just such a unique concept. Um, and I love, I'm all for originality, you know, mm-hmm. and this is a big, this is a big budget original film, sci-fi film. And I think I read somewhere, no one that conceived the idea in the nineties and, you know, you know, did some other stuff. And so he had, so it was something he eventually, you know, got to in 2010. And, um, yeah, it's just a movie that, like, like, like you said, it's something you can glean from with with, with rewatchings. And I love that you know it's all about you know Cobb doing this mission, you know, to to plant this idea in someone else's mind uh, to accomplish this, accomplish this mission. But at, the, at its core, it's more than that. It's also about him overcoming this guilt of his wife's death. And by doing this mission, he ultimately is relieved of this guilt, and he has this catharsis, you know this purging, which is a, you know, a purging of your main character an emotional purging. And he gets that catharsis only by doing this mission. And this is a guy who's really tormented mentally throughout the entire film. And like, I love, you know, we've talked about how no one goes deep into the psychology of his characters. And this is perhaps the best example of it. You know, he does that a lot with Bruce Wayne, but also Cobb here, you know, he, he goes into his, his mind, literally, you know, we see his, his memories his what he's dealing with with the torment of seeing his wife die right in front of him and the guilt he feels about not doing enough to help her and having his family taken away from him and him having to be away from them. And it's really not until he accomplishes his mission that he's able to finally relieve himself of some of that, some of that guilt and trauma that he, that he faced earlier in life. Yeah. And I also love that the movie kind of serves, this is something I kind of discovered later, but kind of serves also as like a metaphor for filmmaking itself. You know, yeah, Cobb yeah. kind of serves as the director, Ariadne, the production designer, Eames, the actor, Saito, the studio. So I like that as well. Cause you know, we talked about how much no one loves filmmaking. He loves the cinema experience. He loves. And the, Fisher is the audience. 
yeah, there for yeah. Ryan. yeah. They really each serve. They can also they can always they can be uh, they serve as a metaphor for the filmmaking medium and act of making movies itself. So I love that. And of course, you know, I'll, I'll throw in Hans Zimmer once again, a great score from Hans Zimmer, beautiful score, very, very bold score in some, in some places, which I'm totally okay with. Cause I, I think it, the thing, the film demands that, um, a lot of visual effects, you know, a lot of CGI in this movie, but once again, it's like, it's stuff that the CGI actually, you know, it serves the purpose of the story itself. And you literally can't do it without CGI. Right, can't do it without. So, yeah. And so that's why I'm like, I'm okay with it. And honestly, the CGI, you know, when I first saw those buildings, you know, when they, he first shows Ariane, the dream world and those buildings come up on, on themselves. Like that was the first time I think any audiences had seen that kind of anything like that before, you know, it's more common now, but that was, I think I'm trying to think, I don't know if any movie did that kind of, of CGI before, if we ever saw before, anything. Like I that. don't think so. Yeah. Since you see it in like stuff like Doctor Strange, but right, that Doctor Strange made me think of it. But I'm like, okay, Inception did this like eight years before this. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any movie before Inception we ever saw anything like that. So that was something that when I first saw it, I'm like, wow, this is this is amazing. I've never seen something like this before. There's a lot of action in it, but there's also like a lot of character material in it too, which no one is very good at doing. Yeah, the character stuff wouldn't, or the the action stuff wouldn't work without the character stuff. You actually made me made me think about how this is a metaphor for movies, which I've come across a lot of times, where that's the same reason why I really love, or one of the main reasons why I really love Inglorious Bastards, mm. because I love a lot of Tarantino movies. I love most of his movies. Yeah. Um, but the reason I kind of set Inglorious Bastards the highest is because that one, it's all about the power of movies. And... That's it's the same thing with with Inception. Yeah. But even more explicitly because they put together essentially if you follow through that metaphor, they put together a movie for Fisher to watch where mm-hmm. he changed his mind on something and he learned something new about yeah. himself that he wouldn't have otherwise learned. Anyone who loves movies or has had like an experience where even even just a story, not even like you don't have to go specifically with movies even just a story that has influenced you in some way, you can relate to what Fisher goes through, even though it's kind of a negative thing where they're deceiving him into thinking this sort of thing in a way it it, it's like in universe, it's negative, but in practice, in practice and thematically it, it tracks really well. And I love just how Cobb grappling with his, with his grief and his emotions is at the center of everything. Right. Because the further we get down into his mind, into his subconscious, the further we get into, you know, his tortured self. I think we both agree that he's awake in it's real life at the end, right? Yes, I, I have settled on it's definitely like the totem does fall. He is in reality. If nothing else, you have the wedding ring theory yeah. that, you know, he he's wearing his ring in every sequence of the movie where he's dreaming and every sequence where he's not, he doesn't have his ring. And the last scene in the movie, his reign is not on his finger. So if yes. nothing else, that's that's the reason I use he is definitely in reality. So that's why I had what I have settled on. I heard someone recently talking about Inception and they were trying to understand it. Like they haven't, they still don't understand it. And they said, oh, I heard the theory that his wedding ring was the totem, but that doesn't make any sense. And he dismissed it right away. And I said, what? Are you kidding me? That's exactly right. Like, it's not that difficult. It's You just have to watch his hand throughout the movie. Yeah. Right, right. But what's even better is that 
it doesn't matter to Cobb at the mm-hmm. end, whether he's in real life or whether he's dreaming. Um, I think there is a right answer, and we both think that there is a right answer, that he's awake yeah. and that the, the top wobbled. And yeah, we both subscribe to the wedding ring theory. Right. But I don't, like we said, I don't think it matters to him whether or not he wakes up because he purged this guilt from himself and now he's allowing himself to go and see his kids and allowing himself to move on from the guilt that he doesn't have to live with anymore. Yeah. I actually saw a theory for the first time yesterday that the whole thing is actually Cobb being incepted, that he's not guilty of killing his wife. And I don't believe it, but I think that's interesting and it gets at what, like what his his character arc is yeah that's one i've heard a million theories on inception yeah but that's one i just recently heard that i thought was interesting and unique and works thematically at least wow i've also like i've also read you know if if he is in fact still dreaming at the end then it kind of by like all this all this information like it kind of goes back to and ends up being like the whole movie is literally a dream and i just think it's like a bit much for me. Like I, yeah. if, if the whole movie's a dream, then I'm and it's just, not even fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, what am I watching this for? So yeah, I'm just, but it's, yeah, I just love how there's so many theories out there about it. Like people are still talking about it 10 years later. This is its 10 year anniversary. I think mm-hmm. July 16, 2010, it came out. So like literally about next week, it'll, it'll turn 10 years old already. And it'll actually be past the date by the time this publishes, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's like, yeah, it uh, it still has a major following. People are still talking about it almost, you know, over a decade later. And yeah, I I, I just love the movie mm-hmm. so much. Again, I think this is one of three Christopher Nolan movies that we could do a whole episode on this yeah. Dark Knight and Interstellar. But let's move on to Interstellar. A team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. I think that this is probably one of the deepest movies that Nolan has made, obviously yeah. in a storytelling sense, because if you don't understand the science, it is just like you, you'll come out of the movie just thinking like, what in the world did I just watch? Right. What I love the most about it is just love is the one thing that's able to transcend the demand, the dimensions of time and space. Yeah. Um, and you, you were at my wedding Yes. Did you notice that line? Oh, yes. Being said? Oh, I, I noticed. I definitely did. So that that's how much Christopher Nolan's his uh, movies. movies mean to me and how yeah. much his themes in his movies just like permeate a lot of parts of my life. Yeah. Um, and that that's and it's not even romantic love. That's the main kind of love in Interstellar. It's the love right. between a parent father. and child. Yeah. Father and a daughter. Right. But it's all. It also does get into the romantic love a little bit with uh, Brand. She says he's the reason that she went on this mission at all because there's even the slightest possibility mm-hmm. that she might be able to see him again. It just shows, you know, the power of love, like uh, Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just there's just so much about Interstellar. I prefer the opening half of it, like everything on Earth. I prefer yeah. to the stuff in space just because I think that hits me more. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you've had conversations cause I've had conversations of what movie scenes will make you cry every time you watch them. 
Yeah. For me, it's Murph saying don't go as he's walking out. Yes. And then leading to him driving away in the truck and checking in the camera's eyes. Yeah. Checking on the passenger seat to see if Murph is there because Uh, she was earlier in the movie. Yeah. Like way to wreck you, Christopher Nolan. Way to way to go. Also a, a very, very emotional scene for me was whenever he's he sees he's in his, you know, the spacecraft and he's looking at the the videos, the video logs of the past and she's all grown up, I think, mm-hmm. or, or something. Yeah. And, you know, he sees how much time he has lost with his daughter. And um, it's just a very heartbreaking scene uh, to, to, to see. Yeah, that's the one that everybody talks about. And I'm not saying that you're wrong. Yeah. Um, one where everyone talks about what's going to make you cry every time. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not disagreeing, but yeah, for me, for reason it's just when he checks in the passenger seat that just yep. sees the emptiness every time yep and i do want to go back to inception real quick the when i mentioned a dark night the the stuff where he cuts between different stuff all at once and it's super ten, tension filled yes um the part when yusuf is driving the van arthur's trying to figure out how to do the kick right and they're all in the snow dream level all that going together, that's what I think is a little bit better than the scene in Dark Okay, Man. okay. Yeah, I could, I, could, I could see that because there's so many layers, so many layers going on. Everything has to work out. And you know the stakes of the job itself. You know the stakes of each thing and then the, the stakes of yeah. right, the job the itself. Timings have to line up perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like I was saying, Interstellar, that's a top five all-time movie for me. Mm-hmm. I. It just means a lot to me. And... Um, I was just talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly today on a different podcast on the Sif Pop Writers Room. Go listen to that. I think this, the good, the bad, and the ugly has the music in a movie that fits that movie the best and it elevates it. Um, but I think Interstellar is a close second for me. I think the music in this is yeah. Hans Zimmer's best work, oh, yeah. at, at least in Christopher Nolan movies. I'm not going to fault you or disagree if you think a different one was better. Mm-hmm. But for me, I just love the organ and how it, how it works, like the scenes when, when they're trying to dock the spacecraft. The, dock, the and all docking that. scene is just, the number one one that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. There's just so much. Go ahead and gush about Interstellar if you want, because I've I've gushed yeah. my good amount. I mean, I've said everything I want to say. Yeah, I mean, when I saw this again, this is when I saw opening night in IMAX. It was a sold out theater. I pre bought tickets. Uh, because it was, I knew it would, it would probably sell out. Now I was, I was blown away when it, when it came out. I loved the dealing with multiple multiple dimensions. You know, the time, the time travel, the wormhole. You know, I had no idea what all I was in store for. I knew I was going to be in store for a big, you know, vast experience. I just didn't know where exactly I was going to go. And uh, I love that. Have you seen two thousand one, A Space Odyssey? Yep. Okay, yeah, this movie really homages homages 2001 in many ways, and it really it actually provides some answers to the, some questions that 2001 raises about about humanity themselves. And I loved I loved the homages that it brought to 2001. There's even like some small smaller versions of the monoliths that we see in 2001. True. So I, I liked I liked that. Um, I thought it was you know obviously a visually stunning film. This is another one that he uses a lot of CGI. This is definitely his most CGI heavy film. Well, yeah, I still say it, it passes Inception for for CGI because it's so much. It has to do just because of the space stuff. Yes, in space, it's not really. Uh, I'm not going to take a spaceship. I'm sure he'd love <laughs> to take a spaceship up there and film, but you know that's not really. Uh, 
reasonable uh, right now. Um, but yeah, so some very, very stunning CGI work here. The creation of the wormhole itself, which I love that they brought in a real physicist, Kip Thorne, to to give advice on you know what a wormhole looks like. And whenever, I think an image last year was released by NASA of a wormhole, and we got to actually see how accurate Interstellar was. And it was actually fairly fairly close. So they, they, they got a lot of things right with bringing in a physicist to check out what an actual wormhole wormhole looks like. And some great action sequences. We mentioned the docking scene with Hans Zimmer's score. I loved how emotional and powerful the film was. Um, I wrote, I have my review actually still up for it because I wrote my original review and right after I saw the film in 2014 for Cinema, Cinema Blography, Messiah's Cinema Blog website. Um, so if anybody wants to check it out, it's, I still have my review up for that. And in that review, I noted how it balanced intimacy and epic scale because this is a very epic mm-hmm. film. It's set in outer space and different dimensions, and but it's still a very, very intimate film with focusing on the rela- relationship between a father and his daughter. I love that it doesn't lose sight of that because it very easily could have just been just a big space ride, you know, and forgot about the human the human elements, but it doesn't. It really balances those. And if anything, I think it's more intimate than epic in many ways. Yes. And um, which isn't a, isn't a small thing to do when you're when you're doing something of, of this scale. So that that's what I liked about it. Uh, when I have done multiple rewatchings of it, I, I do realize I think the pacing is a bit slow. I think it's about a half hour too long. I think it runs over three hours. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's an over over three hours. I think it's about two fifty. I'll double check. Okay. So it's so it's almost three hours. I do think it, it is it is slow in certain parts. I think it could easily could have been trimmed twenty minutes to a half hour to make it shorter, which would have made it a little bit a little, a little more enjoyable. But I think the slow pace is also like a, a homage itself to two thousand one because that's literally how two thousand one is. It's a very slow moving film. That he wants think, scenes to breathe and he wants to take his time to tell the story um so i can't really fault him for that but if but and just how much time it actually takes in the world of the movie for everything to happen i think yeah yeah he just he wants to put the audience in that sort of mindset and put the audience in cooper's shoes right and this is one actually i need to revisit myself because it's it's not one like I can sit down and just watch anytime I want. Like it's one of those like I can do that with The Dark Knight. I can do that with The Batman Begins or even The Prestige or Inception. But it's not a movie that I can just sit down and be in the mood for anytime I want. And so for that reason, this movie kind of falls definitely to the lower. I'll, I'll get my ranking eventually, but it definitely is on the lower, much, much lower end of my Nolan favorite films. Nice. So before we move on to Dunkirk, I will just add that I looked it up while you were talking. Interstellar has, on a, after a quick Google search, Interstellar has 700 yeah. VFX shots and uh, Inception has 500. Okay, so, so a bit more. Okay. I yeah. thought they were kind of somewhat close. Okay. So 2017 film Dunkirk. Allied soldiers from Belgium, the British Empire, and France are surrounded by, Ger- by the German army and evacuated during a fierce battle in World War II. Uh, I didn't really like Dunkirk the first time I saw it just because I didn't get it. Like mm. I didn't, I still think this is a knock against the movie. What is the mole? You mm-hmm. don't realize that it's a location yes. necessarily yeah. the first time you see it. Um, but now I do appreciate it. I don't like you were just saying about interstellar. I yeah. don't feel like I can watch it the same way I can the Batman movies or inception, or I can watch interstellar just at any time. Yeah. But I definitely don't feel that way about Dunkirk. 
maybe it's just because it's a war movie and I don't really rewatch war movies very much. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's more filmmaking than story. He shows uh, how impressive of a filmmaker he is. Whereas in the past, he's shown how impressive a filmmaker he is and how well he can weave in a great story into a great film, like in a great filmmaking experience. Because there's not a ton of character work. He's more interested in putting you in the mind of a soldier and just like a nameless soldier because there are so many people on that beach that needed to be evacuated. He's more interested in putting you in just that sort of position than he is explaining you know, a character's specific deep seated motivations or that sort of thing. But I think visually it's super well done. Um, And it's a sort of feel good movie in the sense that you feel the human accomplishment at the end and realize what they were able to do to save all these men on this beach. I don't remember the exact number, but it's something very high. I'm not even going to try to guess. It's something high. Yeah. It's thousands. Yeah, thousands of people on this beach that needed to be evacuated. And then he ends it the same way that he does with so many other movies with cross-cutting with voiceover over top of it. And I just think that's become such a Nolan staple that, you know, they're one and the same. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how Tenet is going to end. He just does that so well. And it's a perfect way for wrapping up his movies, which are all so epic and have so many different plot threads that need to be tied together. But he does a good job of tying them all together with one uniform speech. And he yeah. also does it in Interstellar, and he, he does it everywhere. It's I think mm-hmm. it's so great. Yeah, this is this is one that I saw once again. I, actually, it wasn't. It may not have been an opening day. Yeah, actually, I think it, I think it was opening day. I saw it in Philadelphia, but afterwards, I was like, yeah, this is. This is a very different movie than what I thought it was going to be. It is because it does do. It's a major departure, I think, from Nolan's previous work because yeah. a it's a war film. It's not. It's not an original film like he's done with some of his other films. He uh, he doesn't dive into his character's psychology like he does in many of his other films. He doesn't focus on one or, or two or a couple characters. It's literally a bunch of characters that he's following around, and you don't. You barely know their names. You do know their names, I think, but you don't get much more other than that. They're very mm-hmm. one-dimensional characters, and that was something I was like, I really don't like one-dimensional characters because I like to be able to, you know, see a character. I like to see them develop over the course of a film and all of that. And you don't get any of that in this movie. The characters do not develop. They are, they're basically just named, and that's it. That's all you know about them. So, you, and you're just following them from all over the place, different settings. So that for that reason, I didn't really like it that much. But then, like when I rewatched, I did some you know, rewatching. I'm like, okay, it's just it's just very. He, and of course, you know, he did this purposefully. It's a it's the style of the film. He wanted to focus on the event itself and the people that were part of the event, and not focus on just one person's journey. It was a collective experience. And so for that, I really, I, I saw that point. I'm like, okay, okay, I see where he's where he's getting at. He still played with time, which some have commented. This is definitely some people have said that this is just a gimmick, just because no one he always has to manipulate time in his movie. So he has you know the land, air, and sea set on three different time frames. You know, one's an hour, I think one's a day, and one's a week. Mm-hmm. I forget which is which, but um, yeah, the air absolutely. is an hour, the, the sea is a day, and the, the land is a week. Yeah. 
And I've heard some people say, oh, this is just a gimmick because no one has to manipulate time in his movies. And I, I still don't really think it's a gimmick. I think it works really well for the for the film itself. Um, it doesn't feel like a gimmick a gimmick to me. And I think it keeps things also just very, very engaging because they're happening across three different time periods. Once again, this is a Hans Zimmer score. And actually, when I first heard this, I wasn't a big fan of the of Zimmer score of this movie. But the more times I watched it, it did grow on me. And it's definitely it's a, it's a it's a different Hans Zimmer score. If you were yeah. in here expecting an Inception type score, you're not going to get that. And that, I think that's kind of for some reason that's what I was what I was expecting going into it, and it's just a very it's a more laid back score from Zimmer this time. Ultimately, like I liked how this was a different kind of war film. You know, they say it directly in the end, but this wasn't a victory in the traditional sense because they you know it was a, at the end a colossal military disaster, but the victory itself was getting people rescued. You know, ultimately this was a major failure on the part of the al- the allies. You know because they had to evacuate, you know, it was just say about saving people's lives. So I like that it took a very, it was a very different kind of story and no one, you know, he's, he was, you know, he's British himself. And so this is something he wanted to bring to the forefront for audiences. And he has that mainstream appeal now that he could do it. And so I like that he, that he did it. And overall, this is a solid war film. I won't say it's my favorite war film to date, but uh, it's definitely still very, very solid. Yeah, I agree. It's not, like we said, it's not quite top tier Nolan, but yeah. he's doing something different. And I think right. I have to respect and appreciate that uh, in a different way than I love, like we said, the movies like Inception or Dark Knight or something like that. Right. So with that, we're up to date with everything that's come out. Tenet is going to come out at some point. I think it's safe to say that we're both super excited for Tenet. Yes, yes. Still um, waiting. Yes, it'll come out at some point. It's definitely, like we said, safe to say that we're both intensely looking forward to this whenever it does come out. I love John David yep. Washington and Black Klansman, and I love Robert Pattinson in general, um, but I'm excited to see him in Nolan. So now we're going to move on to rankings of our favorite Christopher Nolan movies. Um, Anthony hasn't seen them all, so I'll let you go first, and then I'll finish off because I've seen them all. Okay. So we're going the least favorite to favorite here, right? So, so my number, my number, I only did eight, so because I've only seen eight of his films. Number eight would be Memento. Um, number seven would be Interstellar. Number six would be Dunkirk. Number five would be The Dark Knight Rises. Number four, Batman Begins. Number three, The Prestige. Number two. The Dark Knight and number one Inception. So yeah, I, I saw saw your face there when I put Interstellar way back at number <laughs> number seven. I told you I, I have it very low. I have it very low there, but uh, yeah, that, those are my rankings there. Nice. Uh, honestly, I can't argue with them. And <laughs> Inter- Inception and Dark Knight are number one all time for you anyway, right? Not yeah, just yeah. So that that part was easy. It was just I was like Inception, Dark Knight. Okay, that's my number one. Number two, I just have to yeah. go from here. Yeah. Well, and if you're listening, if you're looking for explanations, just hit rewind on your podcast player because we've talked in depth about all of these. For me, I'll go number 10, Insomnia, number nine, Following, number eight, The Dark Knight Rises, number seven, Dunkirk, six, Batman Begins, five, Memento, four, The Prestige, three, The Dark Knight, two, Interstellar, and one, Inception. These are subject to change at any moment. 
Yeah. I was reading this off. I wrote this down yesterday. And now I'm even thinking about switching the Dark Knight and, and yeah. Interstellar. I don't even yeah. know. <laughs> uh, I reserve the right to change them yep. in 10 minutes. So that's all we have. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on here and by far being part of the longest and most in-depth episode I've had of this podcast. Yeah, we went, well, like, what about two hours? But honestly, it didn't feel that long. Like, I, I love talking about Nolan. I, You know, he's my favorite director. Anybody who knows me knows he's my favorite. I love his movies. Um yeah, it, it was. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks for having me on your on your podcast. Yeah, of course. Where can people find you apart from this singular episode? Yeah, I I mean I am on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. My Instagram handle is like Anthony Watkins 1993. On Twitter, I'm at Anthony Watkins with two S's. There's two S's on my name because someone took Anthony Watkins <laughs> and I can't get him to undo it, even though it's a completely inactive Twitter account. So Happy that's a whole thing. I'm slightly bitter, but, um, Anthony Watkins, two S's. Um, if you want to check out my podcast, it's facebook.com slash buddy movies. We, uh, we have like 22 episodes. I think Al, it's just me, my, my former uh, college classmate, Mark Young. We talk about movies, uh, past and present and, uh, yeah. And that's, uh, and I also write film reviews on my website, anthonydwatkins.com slash reviews. I write a review for each movie that I've seen in theaters Lately, I have not written any because, well, no movies in theaters, but my last one was Onward, so you can check that out, and uh, yeah. So there's plenty of places to find you. As usual, you can find me at roberts-thoughts.com, which is my blog, obviously. Find me at underscore Rob's Thoughts on Twitter, at Robert's Thoughts on Instagram. Uh, Check out today's post. It will be on following because I need to fill in that gap from my series a couple years back. Get excited for the next episode, which is going to be me and my dad talking about the movie About Time. Uh, We talked about it for about 10 minutes on my Donald Gleason episode, but this is going to be a full episode about it. So I want to say thanks to Anthony for being a great guest. Thanks to Luke for the artwork. Thanks to Laura for the intro and outro music. And thanks to you for listening. But until next time, just remember, a hero can be anyone, even a man doing something as simple and reassuring as putting a coat around a young boy's shoulder to let him know that the world had him in.